Fualcha, 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 Akharja Gale, and welcome to episode number 70 of the Rebel Matters podcast. The guest on the show this week is my mate Abdallah, who I first met in August of 2018 while he was giving us a walking tour of the old city of Hebron in the West Bank in Palestine. And I hooked up with him again along with the rest of the group that I was in Palestine with in February of this year, 2020. For sure, one of the most tense moments of the whole trip out there, which was nearly two weeks long, happened during the walking tour with Abdallah when we were on Al-Shawara Street, which used to be the main shopping street in the city of Hebron, and which was subsequently closed down in 1994 by the Israeli military after... Uh, an extremist Israeli settler went into Hebron's Ibrahimi Mosque and killed 29 people with an automatic weapon, injured another 150 and many more were uh, shot and attacked outside the mosque as they tried to flee by another group of settlers who were waiting outside. And after that massacre, the Israeli army closed the street down commercially and then limited access to it um, and essentially closed the street down and the effect was that it kind of suffocated the street economically and suffocated many people economically as well. We were on that street when a settler came flying up in his SUV to our group, which was the six of us who were travelling over there working on getting the Akli Palestine Jim set up in the Aida refugee camp and Abdallah, so there was seven of us in total and he jumped out and was up right up on our grill taking pictures and talking and uh, it just so happened that Abdallah had been telling me about this guy before we entered Al-Shawada Street and that the week before he had pulled out a weapon, a handgun and was walking directly up to Abdallah and he thought that this guy was going to shoot him. Uh, he was with another group of visitors at the time. And luckily enough, uh, he got the guy to go away by taking his phone out and letting on that he was videotaping him while he was making his approach. So this guy came out and was trying to intimidate us and incite aggression from us. But as you'll hear in the chat with Abdallah, everyone in the group handled, handled themselves really well and eventually that guy just went away again. It was a really brilliant tour and on the day that we had the official opening of the Akli Palestine gym, Abdallah came over to the Eider refugee camp to take part and just to be there for the official opening. And what sparked my initial interest about Palestine in the first place was the kind of sense that I had that there was a long stand and kind of connection there between what's happening there in Palestine and what happened here in Ireland and in particular in the six counties. And that's kind of what made me go over there in the first place a few years ago. But when I think about it now, the interest, to have the initial interest was one thing. The next level of it beneath the surface was to go and visit. And then the next level of it was the kind of connections and the personal connections that I made and getting to know people over there and making friends. And Abdallah is definitely one of those mates that I've made from the visits over to Palestine. And it was great to get the opportunity to sit down with him and hear his personal story 
about how he ended up doing what he's doing now and to get more insights in what it's like in day-to-day life for Palestinians in the West Bank. So I really think that you're going to enjoy this episode. Another thing about Palestine, and I suppose any other struggle that you want to learn about, it's impossible to get the full picture from any one podcast or from one movie or documentary or whatever. So I've actually put some, posted some links onto a blog post on the Rebel Matters website. So you can go to rebelmatters.ie and find the blog post that's related to this episode and you'll see the links there for documentaries and films about Palestine and a few specific book recommendations. There's Richard Fox, Palestine's Horizon, Towards a Just Peace. There is On Palestine with Elan Pape and Noam Chomsky, A History of Modern Palestine and the Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. There are two more books by Elan Pape as well, so you can go and find those if you want a bit of extra literature, which would, I would really recommend. But listening to this podcast is a very good start because I think that hearing the human side and making personal connections with people that are engaged in struggle and in causes is a very good way of getting kind of an on-the-ground sense of what's happening, but also as kind of like an anchor for your um, for your interest in struggles. And that's definitely something that has kind of solidified in my mind like the importance of some of the work that we're doing with the crew out in the Ada refugee camp. I think that one of the best things about the podcast here is that we just get the opportunity to hear people's personal stories and give people the platform to tell us about their day-to-day lives. And when that person is someone who is coming from a community or a place that is being heavily oppressed or they're engaged in a struggle of some kind in their day-to-day life, I think it makes it more personal and it kind of, for me anyway, it definitely connects the dots a bit more. And like when I think about the work that we do in Palestine, it just means more on a deeper level whenever I know that we're doing it in hand in hand with our friends over there as opposed to kind of just doing it from afar and not having the personal connections so that's another reason why I was really glad just to get the opportunity to sit down with Abdallah and just learn a little bit more about his story and his life in general before we get stuck into the chat I just want to give a massive shout out to everyone who has been sharing the podcast on social media and everyone who's been getting in touch through social media messages or emails, especially in Deirdre and Blanet, who sent me lovely emails during the week there. Also, a massive Gorakad Milamaygov to everyone who has been supporting the show on Patreon. If you want to become a patron of the show, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters and see how you can do that there. It has been class just building up the bit of support behind the podcast, whether that's through social media, people getting in touch with emails or messages and the new patrons that have come on board since the lockdown started. So thanks a million for everyone who's come on board and keep her lit. As usual, after the main chat with Abdallah here, 
if you let the outro music play, then there is a bit of reading at the very end. I'll be reading the next chapter of Charles McGlinchey's book, The Last of the Name. If you want to hear the very first chapter of that book, then you can go back to episode 67. And the first chapter is at the very end of that episode. But for now, let's get stuck into the chat with Adela and episode 70 of the Rebel Matters podcast. Bonnegui Saltas. we met each other was on the tour last year yeah. uh, so maybe we can go back back a bit from that yeah yeah so are you from Hebron me yes originally from Hebron my father is from Hebron but my mom she's from a small Palestinian city in the north it's called Safad it's considered today the fourth religious place for Israeli Jews but my mom family back in 1948 they were kicked out by force from Tzafad they left to Jerusalem instead of leaving the country of course they lived in Jerusalem until 1967 but during this time some of her family managed to open some businesses in Hebron because Hebron is a commercial area so when the six days war started in 1967 Half of her family, the ones who own businesses in Hebron, instead of leaving the country, they ran away from the war to the south of Jerusalem. They ended up in Hebron. But after that, it turns out they couldn't go back to Jerusalem or even to Tzafat. And they are labeled as Palestinian refugees, but inside the country. I born and grew up in Saudi Arabia because my family used to live there, because of my father's work. You were born in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I was born in 1990s in Saudi Arabia. I lived there for 12 years, but my father stayed there for almost 25 years because of his work. But in 2000, the second intifada started. So my father was afraid that things would get worse and worse and maybe the borders will be closed and we will not be able to go back to Palestine. And he don't want us, of course, with my mom, to go through the tragedy for the Palestinian refugees. Because if the borders were shut down, maybe we'll end up as refugees in Saudi Arabia. So it took him two years. Two years later, in 2002, things started to get worse and worse in Palestine. So he decided to quit his job, and we moved back to the country. And I moved back with all the family, moved back from Saudi Arabia to Palestine back in 2002. And I've been living in Hebron since that time until today. So you were 12 when you moved back? Yes. What was life like after that? Yeah, it was actually strange because my family, when we, when we were kids living in Saudi Arabia, and this is something very important to mention, when we start to realize what's really happening around us, it was important for my parents to make us understand that we are not... Saudis, we are Palestinians. And to be aware of what's really happening 
happening in Palestine and that we will go back there to live at the end because it's, it's our homeland. So as a child, 10 years old in 2000 when the Second Intifada started and I was in Saudi Arabia, watching TV, seeing demonstrations on this screen, it felt like a movie, you know. <laughs> a 10 years old child, of course, you will, you will not understand what's happening. But our parents did their best to make, to make us understand what's really happening. But in 2002, when we moved back, and remember I told you it was the worst time in the Second Intifada, it was the highest peak of violence and troubles, our family put a lot of rest- restrictions on us. Because as a child, to move from Saudi Arabia, from a place which is, let's say, almost peaceful, to come back to an area which is like a war zone. So my primary school was exactly next to my house, only five minutes walking. But something attracted me a lot in that, in that time when I lived in Saudi Arabia, watching the demonstrations from TV, seeing all those different kind of flags that represent different political movements with the Palestinian flag. So I remember in 2002, and it was around nine months, I think, or eight months after we moved back to Palestine. I left the school, and next to my school there was a huge, there is a huge university. It's called Hebron University, and universities in Palestine it's the place where the politics and political activists they are active. So they were organizing a lot of demonstrations in that time. So when I left the school, I saw this huge demonstrations with thousands of people going, and I saw what I saw it in TV, but on real life, and as I. Kid who's 12 years old, of course, we all do stupid stuff. So I start to think, okay, I don't want to go home now. I will, I will see what's going to happen. And remember, I was only 12 years old. I ended up carrying a Palestinian flag, shouting with people, repeating what they are saying, moving, moving, walking for two hours until we reach the city center. And here the story starts to become more crazy. And I couldn't understand what, what could be the consequences for me to go through in this demonstration. And then the army started to shoot fire randomness. And this is what happened. As a kid, I started to run. I ended up in a small alley hiding. And the army was shooting hundreds of rubber bullets randomly against people. And at the end, as a 12 years old child, one of the rubber bullets hit an iron door and it hit me on my knee. By this time, my family, they realized that I'm not home. They started to search in every Palestinian police station, every hospital. And they already went to the hospital, but I wasn't there by that time. So they didn't find any name. They kept searching in the city, calling our relatives until one of my aunts, living in Jordan, she was watching a live stream for Al Jazeera TV covering the demonstration in Hebron, and she called my mom, asking about me. We just saw him on TV. Then my family decided to search again at the hospital, and they found me by that time. But since I attended that demonstration, I still remember. My family, especially against me, they put a lot of restrictions because they were not ready to lose anyone. When the Second Intifada was over in 2005, things were still unstable in Palestine. So it continues until 2007, 2008, when I graduated from the high school. And then I've, I realized that now I can do what I really want. 
there is no restrictions at all and that was the truth so as a child to live in the second intifada here it wasn't easy thing because a normal child will grow up in a normal childhood you will play you will meet your friends but here the only thing one of the main things i remember is gunshots problems ambulances sounds watching tv uh, people getting killed so it was almost every day to live with those kind of feelings and to see what's really happening even if it doesn't affect you personally or your family but to see people who's getting killed and watching tv and to see the tragedy that people have have to go through it wasn't an easy thing at the time <clears throat> did you realize that it was not normal because if you're kind of well maybe you had you had time when you weren't you were growing up in Saudi Arabia so yes. there's, there's things maybe a little bit more peaceful there and you come in but I remember whenever I was 18 when I left Belfast for the first time mm-hmm. speaking to people and like nothing I couldn't say that anything like really horrific happened to me or luckily any of my immediate family but we were still growing up in a situation where there was a conflict going on. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Limerick in the south of Ireland yeah. and people were coming up and we were just having, sitting and having a conversation, they're like, what? Are you serious? Like, that really happened? Is that, like, really? And I didn't really know that anything was that unusual about it until I left for a little while. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah, see, maybe... Like maybe that thing's not like a normal thing that should be happening in society so how was that with you? as a child who grew up outside of Palestine of course I had like a normal life as a child there but it wasn't comparing to any other part because you live in Saudi Arabia which is an area I remember all my friends they were from different Arab countries because that's a place which is open for any Arabs to, to go there and work but of course moving here it was strange because at the end I was living in Saudi Arabia, you will go to school, you have a, school, a normal, normal school day, you will hang out with your friends uh, or your neighbors, you will play soccer in the streets and no problems at all. So you felt safe. And that was, I think, one of the challenges when I came back here, like in the middle of the night to wake up with something called randomly shooting where the Israeli army during the Second Intifada, there was a lot of time where they implemented a curfew, which is not allowed for anybody to move from their homes. So normally at 8 p.m. they will use the high hilltops from the city center or the place where we visited to shoot fire randomly from heavy machine guns against Palestinian homes, and it was randomly. And to wake up as a child, on this mass, bullets and fire shots. It wasn't normal. You have this feeling that you are not safe at all. And imagine if you are a child and you feel that even your family cannot protect you from anything that, that's happening. And this was clear to me because my uncles from my mother's side, they, they were living in the city center of Hebron. So every time when they want to go from the north after they finish their job to, to go back to their homes, they couldn't cross five meters in the street because the Israeli building was on the other side and they could see the bullets, so they used to come and to sleep over in our house. And here's the confusion that started with me, like if my uncle is staying here but his house is very dangerous and he's leaving his children there, why he would do that? But after that, when I start to grow up, when those memories comes back to me, I understood what was really happening. 
So growing up in the second intifada as a child, everything was different from what I grew up in Saudi Arabia, even if it was for a couple of years. But at the end, this is, wasn't a normal place in the second mm. intifada. Did you break your leg when, you, when the bullet hit, bullet hit you? In the no, middle? I was very, very lucky because normally the Israelis, when they shoot rubber bullets, they don't shoot one bullet. They shoot like 100 or 200 together. So those bullets goes randomly in random places. So the bullet that hit me, it hit an iron door first. So the small metal thing on top of it, it break on the metal door and then it reflected to me. So I wasn't directly shot. If I was directly shot, maybe I would lose my knee at that time. But it was not that serious injury. But like every time I take a shower or I go to swim, like I look at my knee and I remember. <laughs> uh, one thing that uh, was kind of... Do you, do you find it hard to speak about things like that? Sorry? Do you find it hard to speak about things? Like when you're remembering back to your childhood? No, actually... Because I think those bad memories for me as a child from the second intifada is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Like, if I didn't attend that demonstration, if I didn't get this shot, and if I didn't face the restrictions from my family because they were afraid about me, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So I, I speak, speak about it openly without any hesitation at all. So when you finished high school then? I finished high school in 2008. <coughs> But in that year, I had a cousin from, like, my mother, she has only one sister who lives in Jordan. So my cousin was studying in UK. So when I was doing the high school exams, he called my mom and he called me and he said, like, the university where he's studying is offering scholarships to Palestinians. So I applied for this scholarship and I get a scholarship to study at UCL, University in London. I started the process applying everything, everything was okay, now I want to check about the visa, but it turns out in 2008, a war started against Gaza, and it was one of the worst wars that Gaza witnesses, because the Israelis used an illegal weapon, it's called the white phosphor. But in that time, many Palestinian students, they were already in the EU, and they, after the war, they couldn't go back to Gaza, so they started to apply for asylum. So the EU decided in that time that they don't want to face this problem, so they didn't accept more visas, I think. So mm. I couldn't get a visa to go and study there. Today, when you I got the scholarship, but couldn't get yeah, a visa. But today, when I remember this, I'm really glad that my visa was rejected and I didn't get it, because I, I think if I I went that there in that time, maybe I would study something related to law, and when I come back here, I would ended up working with an agency like the UN, who's not useful or helpful at all. Mm. Uh, so I think, in that time, I decided to apply for a local university. I studied accounting and business administration, and from the first year, I started to involve in politics. Organizing a lot of events with different political parties, attending uh, demonstrations if there is something happening in the country and then I started with something called International Voluntary Work Camp through a small organization in Hebron where they organized a, a work camp for international volunteers to come to live in Palestine for 10-15 days getting the chance to know the social, the political life of Palestine. And from that time 
I remember 2009, I attended the first work camp, and then the leader, he decided to take us to Hebron for a full day. So you're 19 at this stage? Yes, yeah. 19. So when we arrived to the, the work camp was in Bethlehem, we went to Hebron for a tour, and it was my first time in H2 area, and the old city of Hebron. Oh. And I lived in Hebron since 2000. So by that time, I was living there around nine years. But when I, wa- when I went with them, I was shocked as a Palestinian. Then I started to realize, okay, like if I don't know about it as a Palestinian, so I think we should not blame anyone who don't live in this country, how bad the situation is. And I got this idea that what my friend is doing, showing people around, it's an important thing. So I decided to start this thing. I started on a small scale through my friends that I met through the work camps when their friends come and visit Palestine. I started to organize for them the small tours, only in my free time. And when I was student, in the same time I was improving myself, trying to understand the conflict more and more, and trying to, to pass the experience to different people coming to the country. 2014 I graduated, but by that time my network of friends was growing up, and I was doing this a lot. When I graduated, I worked directly with a huge telecommunication company in 2014. It's called Jawal. I stayed there for only 23 months. My contract was over. Then I decided, okay, if they want to to renew my contract, I don't want this because my network was growing up and I said, this is, I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't want to wear a suit, a tie, have a fancy office, no. I don't want to have a manager, which is also most important. And I started to do this in 2015, 2016 for a full time. And that year was the main year where I took the decision, okay, I don't want to work with the private sector. I can work as a full-time tour guide, but in the same time, I'm doing something really important. Mm -hmm. And I should not keep this knowledge only to me, I should pass it to other people. There's two things that came to mind, and I know... There are a lot of things that are very different between the conflict in Ireland and what's yeah. happening here in Palestine, but then there are also things that are very similar. And I remember, so the, we're, we live in West Belfast, and there's two parts of West Belfast that are very separated from each other. There's the Falls Road and the Schenkel Road. Mm-hmm. So we're from, <clears throat> Andy Town is where we grew up, but it's kind of like an extension of the Falls Road. And then there's a wall in the middle and the Schenkel Road is on the other side and I was 19 before I seen the other side just ever because, because there was never any reason to go there and just a strange and actually we're, it's uh, almost the same experience, uh, the same experience man. so weird like I, I remember the only reason I, I, I went there was because I was went for a I got a bicycle for my 18th birthday. So one and you day, decided to, to, to drive, to go with it. I got way. lost. And uh, <laughs> so I, there's a mountain in Belfast. So I said, I'll cycle up the mountain. And then I got lost. And I could just see the city. So I said, well, I'll just like, towards the city. And then I remember it was July. So there was all the English flags and everything. And uh, I had like a jersey, like a an Irish sports jersey on mm. and uh, my bike had on the side written Searsha which is the Irish word for freedom <laughs> and I was sitting at the traffic lights and on the Shankle Road then just being like fuck and like I have to get out of here um, 
<clears throat> and the other thing was that so when, I think I'm, when I mentioned to you the other day that one of my friends uh, Padraig does tours in West Belfast yeah. <laughs> I've been with him on probably 20 tours at this stage because every time I bring my friends up a lot of the time we, we meet up with Padraig and we do a walking tour for a few hours and but it's been a really good it's been such an important kind of experience just being with him because you learn more about what happens in times whenever I was just maybe a child and wouldn't remember at different parts of the road um, and then in turn then I love bringing people to Belfast now and giving them a showing them around uh, and bringing them for a bit of a tour um, so we started doing the uh, tour guides then in 2005 2009 and then 2015 I decided to do it full, full time. time so um, so I've been with you twice now yeah on the tour and um, it's the most intense tour that I got anywhere because of everything that's happening there and the group that we're with the six of us here every night since we came here we meet at the end of the night and we just talk about like what Okay, how's everybody feeling today? What do we recap? Exactly, yeah. And then sometimes there's been a few times where it went for like two two hours or more because we were just trying to like put things in order a little bit. Yeah. Of what was happening here? What did you think about the situation? Um. So, um, my question really is, uh, like, the tours. Like, do you feel like? you're obviously doing it because you, you want to tell the story of yeah. Hebron and bring people in and let them see what's happening there and that's a form of resistance or a form of the struggle in many ways but do you feel like you're putting yourself at risk when you're doing it? <laughs> to be honest with you yes I feel the risk in every move I take in the old city especially in the restricted areas when we pass next to soldiers and places where settlers is allowed because listen normally people don't like the truth and in this case I'm talking about the other side the Israeli settlers I'm sure that many of them especially the extremist one they know themselves and they know that what's really happening is is one of the most bad things they could do to any other, other nation but what but the feeling I get all the time when I walk in those streets that and sometimes I had this feeling like, what? Why am I doing this? And this feeling came to me when we were standing and that guy was, <laughs> was taking pictures for us. I was trying to be calm, but I was saying in my mind, deep in my mind, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why? But when you think about it more, like, and this is why I keep doing it, I think, because as Abdullah, I didn't get affected by the occupation that much. If I want to compare my situation with other Palestinians, there is people who lost their families, people who lost their beloved ones, some people, their families locked in as well, religions. So when I think about them, I feel if I don't want to do this, just avoid being under risk, that, which is selfish, because all of us as Palestinians, we are under the same occupation. So I find it deep inside, it doesn't make sense or it's not fair at all for me to have a normal life as a Palestinian while in the same time I can do something to help the cause. But if I don't want to do it just because it's risky, then I feel that I'm so selfish. To 
maybe recap on what happened that with that yeah, day with that kind <laughs> of awful <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we had literally just just come through the checkpoint at the top of Valsuada Street and then yeah and when his car was driving I said shit directly because yeah. I knew what's gonna happen and but by coincidence you had been telling me about him yeah 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 just a before few we enter yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, so I just remember you going shit <laughs> that's, that's the guy I was telling you about and then he was up and it, like out of the car taking pictures trying like there's no other way to describe it but he was trying to incite some sort of aggression Yes. from you or from other people who were in the small group yeah but the, the worst part of this also when he was doing this and filming us like also one of the thousands things that was going in my mind like the term of injustice you know this guy who's originally American or who knows what he has a government behind him to protect him you know and me I can't do anything And when you know that if he tried to attack you and you you can't defend yourself, this is also one of the craziest things that was going on in my mind that day. Like, this guy, he can do whatever he want. Like, can you imagine to live with a feeling where you can do whatever you want, which is illegal, illegal stuff, you know? And that guy, truly, he can do whatever he want and no one can stop him. And this same guy was standing behind me and taking pictures. <laughs> I'm trying to take pictures for the other girl with us in the tour for her face so he kneeled down like <laughs> it was crazy but like you he was trying to intimidate us yeah you know? exactly um, I think the best thing when I after that situation passed a little bit the thing oh. I think that like he left and we he left all he didn't get what he wanted yeah yeah, yeah. you kept doing the tour yeah and Actually, he was one of the main things why he do this. He th he thought may maybe that when we see him with the camera, we'll feel intimidated, so we'll leave through the checkpoint. No, but I will not give him this small sense of victory, you know. Yeah. So I decided to continue the tour no matter what happened. And also I was thinking maybe the guys, they don't like that we are standing here. Should I go back? But if I go back, this guy will be so happy, so he did something. Then I looked at you and I said, no, this guy knows what's happening in Hebron. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Let's continue, you know. And um, when we did the talk after that night as well, I think everyone was like, um, like I thought that everyone in that group, there was seven of us, like including yeah. you. I think everyone would like handle the situation in the right way yes. because he ended up leaving. Yeah, he yeah, didn't exactly. Get, didn't get what he wanted. And I saw your reactions. Each one of you was focusing on something. Someone's taking videos. Some, uh, someone is taking pictures. So I saw new faces that you were chilling. So I said, maybe those guys, they know how to handle this. And I'm sure those guys will not beat the shit out of him. So I can stay, you know. <laughs> Although one of, one of the guys in our pattern who was taking the videos, he did say that that was the first time since we came here that his sadness for what was going on around here turned into like an anger like a really uh, like sort of acute anger that was at the, at the surface for him and this is what happened with Palestinians on a daily basis when you, when you feel very sad about the situation you are living in if it turns to anger the problem here is how to control your anger because if you didn't control it 
problems will start. Mm. Not problems, I know, like if we want to talk about uh, about anger or stuff, but it's really hard sometimes to keep controlling this kind of anger. And you yeah. understand what I mean, you know. Yeah, the other thing, which is important maybe to mention for like anybody who happens to be listening to this, is that like when when people are visiting Palestine, with us as well included, there's a thing where something might just be a once-off experience for us or for someone else visiting Palestine. And in a way, it's... I don't know, I, there has to be an understanding about that because you can't just be angry with someone yes. and then leave. And then you're leaving the situation in a worse, yes. worse position. That's why I think people when they come here, it's good that they feel angry about the situation. And I think the best way to handle this is to use this anger to do something that can help Palestinians. Educating people back home about what's really happening here, the roots of this conflict, what's actually happening on the ground. To tell people what you experienced as an Irish guy who came and you saw, he experienced everything with his, his own eyes. I think if you con- convey this anger to a productive thing, that will be helpful to other people, this is going to be useful. But leaving angry and staying angry or depressed for two or three weeks, that will not help you, will not help anyone, will not help the Palestinians in general. That's why I was telling you, please keep smiling. (laughs) The whole thing. (laughs) I've seen a picture of me standing beside you I remember that. When I saw this picture on Instagram, you can't imagine how, how I... <laughs> you know, there's another picture that me when when the the settler was taking the pictures of us. Yeah. I'm standing beside you here. I'm like, I have the most. I've never seen my face like that before. <laughs> I look too pissed off. I'll, I'll show it to you later. <laughs> I've never seen my face so pissed off. I didn't know that my face could do that. But <laughs> well, to be honest with you, after we did the tour and you left to Bethlehem, the whole night I was really. I couldn't control what's happening. I was not that sad, but like I was a little bit angry and not in the mood to do anything. So I was with two friends of mine and it's the first time they see me like this. Normally when I get angry, I deal with it directly. And they were asking me what happened. I was telling them, this guy off, this guy off. And my friend was telling me, shut down, shut down. But when I went back home, I looked at the Instagram and I think I added Vicky where it happened. And then I added the others because I saw that all of you staying in good pictures. And then I saw our picture after he left and we were smiling. And that, after that picture, okay. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> and I could now continue my night. I took a shower. I smoked a cigarette. And then I started to read a book. So I... <laughs> Did you say that this to Vicky? Yeah, you should tell Vicky about this. No, but I will tell you. Sure. Um, okay, so another question I wanted yeah. to ask you was... Um, when you went to the demonstration when you were 12 yes that was before the first intifada or around about that was during the second intifada sorry second yeah yeah so things have changed a lot in the political landscape in Palestine since then and a lot and the sense that I get from many of the people that I speak with is that the that the people's movement 
doesn't seem the same anymore. Yeah, uh, I see it also, it doesn't seem. Because, you know, the people now, I don't want to say they lost hope, but you know what's really happening on the ground today? It's really not helping people to express their feeling or to do the same thing they used to do during the Second Intifada. During the Second Intifada, there was no Palestinian government. In 2006, we had the Palestinian government or the PA. And sort of, it seems that the PA is trying to prevent any kind of... They are oppressing people, let's say. And this is we, not only me can admit it. Any average Palestinian unit in the street will agree on what I'm saying right now. And this is what's happening today. So I think people are not only oppressed from both sides today. And let's be honest about it as Palestinians. Today the people are oppressed by the PA and the Israelis. This is truly what's really happening today. So people, that I don't want to say again that they lost hope, but when they go back to the memories in 2005 and how, how many martyrs and how many people get killed, and if they have the, any chance now to do those demonstrations, and I talked with a lot of friends of mine, they will say, okay, I'm not into any demonstration, even if things started to get worse, because they will tell you, okay, we already saw what, saw what happened during the Second Intifada, and the result, that people are collaborating with the Israelis, a government that doesn't care about us, and on public they are collaborating with the Israelis, so why should I resist sometimes? And this is the scary part in our conflict. Sometimes people, you know, when, when they are surrounded from everything, from every direction, when they are oppressed by two different things, there is no way for them to express their feelings. So you are surrounding them, destroying every possibility for them to express their feelings. This is dangerous, but it's dangerous because soon or later, this this oppression will turn out to a huge problem. People will reach a level they can't take it anymore. That's the thing. The, from the few times that I've been here so far, when I leave or wherever I'm learning more about the conflict here, and I guess I'm probably have a tendency to be yeah. comparing it to Ireland somewhat, or recognizing things and other things that are like completely separate. But uh, it, like whenever I'm here, I feel like the, the people as individuals or organizations on the ground, like they they are like. They're resilient and I guess they're struggling, but then struggling like on the struggle, like they're bringing the struggle, they're keeping the struggle going and stuff like that. But then there is always a sense that the people, the people are always there, but the people haven't got uh, like a leadership that are representing their interests. Exactly, there is no leadership who's trusted today by the people on the ground. So what? How is that gonna? Do you think that's going to come to a point where something's going to happen and, and change? Yeah, but I think something will reach a level that people will accept all. Like They will say that, stop it. We can't take it anymore. <clears throat> and this is, until now, I can't imagine it in my head how things will, will be. This level when people they can't do yeah. it anymore, how it will look like, you know. That's what I worry about because you think you walk yeah. around everyone and you're like, fuck this place is 
at the top level already, but then yeah. you think it has to get worse before something breaks. Yeah, but uh, and that's why I can't imagine it in my head, like how things will become worse and worse. Do you know? Yeah. Do you, are you worried that the tours that you do and being uh, sort of having your own opinions about the political climate will have negative consequences from the PA? Sometimes yes, because uh, I get a lot of questions about the PA and uh, I'm always critical and I like to say my opinion, even if it will get me in trouble sometimes. But I think I will try as much as I can to avoid any problems with them. (laughs) That's the first time that we did the tour, I came away from the tour thinking, is that guy just like, doesn't give a fuck anymore, he's just going to go and keep doing these tours, like, because that's your form of struggle and you're just going to keep bringing people around and like telling people how you see things yeah in a way and so well done no probably (laughs) when we get old when we are 50 or 60 years old and maybe you will come back to visit Palestine hopefully it will not last for this long but you know Yeah, I know. <laughs> I will lead you in the old city with my stick. You know, I like I like to think that for when I think of if if I can think about myself in the future when I'm like seventy, that I look back and say that I done things that I wouldn't do now. <laughs> you know, like that I look back and be like, what was I doing doing that? I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Sometimes what I think about is hello, hello, okay. No, we were just sitting there with the shisha and we were chatting and all of this. So, do you want to come? Yes, we're going. Okay. Two minutes. You're recording. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. It's you now, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to turn up the light and close the okay. media. Okay? Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank you. Um, what I think about it sometimes, especially with the close friends I made during those tours, if I'm 60-like and if things were better than today and going to the same places and remember oh, yeah. and remember like, <laughs> yeah. like imagine this we both of us were 70s and things is different of course on the better side for Palestinians and you come you will come to Hebron we will go to the same place where awful ones coming <laughs> us we'll have a cup of coffee and to have a picture you know and to yeah. take the same picture yeah. the same place. I hope so I look forward to that day um, so I know you're, you mentioned that you're starting a website and things yes your tours is what's the story how can people get in contact with you if they want to so now it? people can get in contact with me through my gmail account until I launch officially my website, which is hebrontours.abdallah, A-B-D-A-L-L-A-H, at gmail.com. I'll write it down for you. I'll it's put fine. it in the notes for the yeah, show yeah. as well. <laughs> awesome. Thanks very much.
This is chapter five of Charles McGlinchey's book, The Last of the Name, and it's called Spinning and Weaving. Up until my early days, lint was the whole industry in the parish. It was dying out in my time, but about 1830, it was in full swing. Lint and butter were the two ways people had for making a shilling. I remember the time myself when nearly everyone in the parish had a barrel of lint sown. I always heard the land that grew lint one year would grow as good a crop of corn the following year, as it would after a crop you had to manure, like potatoes or cabbage. After being steeped in a dam, the lint was scutched with a stick over a block for the purpose. Later, there were scutch mills. There was one in Clay and one in Cook Hill and one in Dunna. I don't think there's a scutch mill in Inishowen at the present time. Long ago, every house was hung round, the bun- hung round with bundles of lint scutched or spun in thread. Women took the bundles of lint for sale to Derry in my father's time. I heard a woman from Tier Horan who set out one morning for Derry with a bundle of lint. It would be scutched, not spun. She walked the 30 miles to Derry and sold her lint at three pence a pound and bought whatever novelty she wanted. On her way back over the hills, she took the cow home with her and had her milked before nightfall. Michal Sean Grania's mother started for Derry early one morning in August with her bundle of lint and carried home on her back a four-stone poke of meal and was home before the sun went down and had a creel of weeds pulled for her cow at milking time that night. Derry was the whole market for lint at that time. I heard tell of Katie McElhenney and some other women from, from Glen being in Derry one time with lint. On their way home, up about inch or somewhere, they fell in with a man going about turf and he gave them a lift on his cart. But Katie soon noticed it was a bullock he had yoked in the cart instead of a horse. So Katie and the others couldn't be bound or held till they got out and walked. They never saw a bullock yoked to a cart before and they got frightened. It was a common thing to walk to Derry in times ago and people thought nothing of it. I heard of a Clonmany woman heading for Derry up over Pinch one morning and she fell in with a banville or a group of men cutting turf about Lag Salach. She told him her errand was to get a pair of wool shears. One of them said he'd lent her a pair, but she said she was that far gone she'd go on. She was a mile from home that time and had the best part of 30 in front of her. She was back with the shears before the men stopped cutting that evening. But all the women weren't as far travelled. Some of them never left the townland they were reared in unless to go to chapel. There was a woman from Altahal one time and she got up to the top of the pinch. She saw the swilly and the hills of Fanad beyond. She said, who would think the world was so big? And there's America land over there. You that broke many's a mother's heart. In my own time, women took the lint to corn and it went for about six pence a pound. They went in the bare feet and carried the shoes on their shoulder and put them on when they got as far as Churchtown. If the lint was to be spun at home, it had to be heckled after it was scutched. It was pulled across a board with nails sticking up in it. Then it was cloved on a cloving stick. The cloving stick had a blade up along the side of it and the lint was drawn through between the stick and the blade. It was ready for spinning then. The same spinning wheel did for lint and wool. The thread was put on the reel and tied in cuts, for cuts made a slipping, twelve slipping made a spangle. A hank was a quarter spangle or three slippings. The people long ago had gatherings for a night's scutching or clothing of lint. There would be twenty or thirty at the gathering. They did the work in the barn or some outhouse and other times in the kitchen. They had a dance after the work was done. Someone would get be got to play the fiddle or two or three of the women would lilt. They had gatherings too for making quilts.
It was all women came to the quiltings. They had a wooden frame to spread the quilt on, which they'd be working. Any of the lint thread that wasn't needed for weaving could be sold in the market. Some took it to Derry and some to Carn and some to the fair at Ballyliffin. They would get two shillings and sixpence a spangle, but that price went up and down. At that time, a gauger attended the market and could tape, take a slipping out of any that was for sale and measure it on a sticky head. That was, that was a measuring rod, and if the slipping didn't reach up to a notch that was on the stick, that bundle would be seized. That meant the reel had to be shortened and wasn't giving the right length of thread. But if the owner knew the law, she could make the gauger measure one cut, and if it measured up to the notch, the bundle would pass. Buyers came to the markets, but many a man in Ballyliffin and Corn bought on speculation of the price going up. A granduncle of mine, the one that got married to the woman in Clocherna after he came home from the Navy, bought up a handling of lint yarn one time, but instead of the price rising, a slack came on and he could get no sale for it, and the whole lot went to loss on his hands. I heard my mother saying he lost up to £30 at the time. The weaving was done on the loom. Any carpenter at that time could make a loom or repair one that got worn or broken. My father worked a lot at weaving linen. It was used for sheeting and men's shirts, for ticking and for towels and sacks. The weavers made a cloth called a drugget or drugoidge, half wool, half linen, with a linen wrap and a woolen weft. It was mostly used for women's clothing. All the young girls would have skirts and frocks made of drugget, with the yarn dyed red and blue. I started to weave myself at 16 years. I was paid sixpence or fourpence a yard according to the breadth and ninepence for weaving drugget because it was harder to do. The yarn was dyed at home after it was spun. Logwood or indigo was used. There was always a pot of indigo kept warm beside the fire in every house at that time. Another great dye was the cruddle or the lichen that grows on rocks. It gave a red or orange colour and was greatly used for dyeing wool. Later on, the lint for ticking was sent to the dysters about Derry. The ticking would come out white and blue in the weaving. Linen weaving was mostly done away with in my time. Linen yarn was only used in making drugget. The sewing was all done by hand and it was lint thread the tailors used. Jeremy McCarran was the tailor in my time. He used to go around and make suits and clothes of any kind in the customers' houses and took all his tackings with him. He got his keep but would go home at night if he was working near. He got five shillings for making a suit and he always used homemade linen thread. The old people had all a supply of linen sheets that would last a lifetime. My mother's people had sheets and sacks made of linen that wore for two generations. I heard that the O'Donnells of Drumfries had a lot of the old linen sheets still of late and they were lent out all around the country to dress up a deathbed. But doing up a deathbed in white sheets is nearly a thing of the past. Some people used lint for thatching long ago and it would last a long time. James O'Donnell and John Carey of Drumfries were up about Bart one time for straw. The farmhouse they called in was thatched with lint that was black and green with age and James was thinking there would be some drops with a roof like that. They asked the farmer how long it was since the place was thatched and he reached up and pulled down a few stalks of the lint and it was as good as the first day it went on. He said his father came to the place 64 years before that and he never remembered the house to be thatched in his time and he thought it would be as long again before a new roof would be needed and he never knew a drop to come through in all that time. People made all the clothes they needed from the wool of their own sheep. I remember when there was nothing going into the chapel 
on a Sunday but homemade cloth. At that time the sheep were all Irish, and the wool was far finer than all the wool that's going now, for it's nearly all Scotch or crossbred sheep that are in the parish at the present time. When the sheep were clipped in the summer, the women scarred the wool by washing it in a brook without soap. It was then carded and spun. They dyed the wool whatever colour they wanted before it was carded. The women in every house used to sit along the fire carding and spinning till bedtime. The woolen yarn was never sold. It was all used in the home weaving, blue suit cloth or white bonning, homespun flannel or blanket cloth. The best spinner I heard of was Anara Yermida of Effishmore. She was my father's time. She used to card and spin a lot during the night when the house was quiet and would work on till the small hours many's a night. One Saturday night there was a priest staying with her who was on his banishment. He was on one side of the fire and Anara on the other side spinning. She had some hens clocking at the side of the kitchen. Sometime in the middle of the night, a rooster jumped up on a creel in the middle of the floor and started to crow. The priest said to Anara that if she'd take his advice, she'd stop working after 12 o'clock on a Saturday night anymore. A rooster crowing at any time during the night was a sort of a sign and people never liked it. In Paddy Moore Roddy's house, there was a roost for the hens down at the door. And one night at bedtime, the rooster began crowing and flapping his wings till he frightened them. The old man was lying in the kitchen bed and he asked the young people what direction was the rooster facing. They told him he was facing in his direction. Then he told them to feel the rooster's feet. Were they cold or warm? They told him they were warm. So Paddy said the thing would go past without a death. That same night, a son of Paddy's nearly died with colic, but he pulled out of it the next day and got all right. My father was weaving a web of cloth for Anara one time, and he sent her word he'd need a couple of hanks to finish the web. Anara's brother Neil took a grey weather in from the side of Bulaba next morning and clipped him, and the woman spun the yarn and took it to my father, and had the web home with him that night. The old people used to tell of a man who clipped the sheep in the morning and had the suit made with a tailor that same night for a wedding he was going to. I learned the weaving trade from my father, and it came naturally to my hand. Many a night I spent at the loom and many a half crown I made when other young fellows of my age were away at the dances or killing. I could make a yard of blanket cloth in, in the hour and that was the wide breadth. Drugget gave more bother in the weaving. The women gave me the yarn to weave in hanks and I set it up on the loom. There were four treadle feet in the loom to get the different patterns. I could weave herringbone patterns or dice patterns, some with eight threads to the dice and some with 16. Phil Levin of Ballinabow was a good weaver, and so was Michael Harkin. Michal Fihidor, he was called. Phil was supposed to weave a hair and a hound into a web of cloth, but that couldn't be done in the loom he worked with. The shuttle was made of apple wood or holly, and had two wire runners on the bottom to make it run over the threads. The reed was made of cane, wood, and had to be made by a reed maker. There was a good reed maker in Dona by the name of Doherty. A reed cost seven pence six shillings. They were of different closenesses. For wool they had 14 splits to the beer. And for linen or ticking maybe 22 or 25 a beer. That was the finest I ever used. But you could get ones finer than that. At a lint clothing or gathering like that. Some people could take write music out of a reed by putting a piece of paper on it and blowing on the paper. Children do it yes yet with a coarse comb. As a piece would be woven I rolled it up on a beam. A weaver always kept a pot or vessel like that with water in it for wetting the work. That kept the yarn from breaking. But the yarn would break. 
many's a time, and had to be tied with a weaver's knot. No other knot would pass through the reed. If the cloth was woven fancy for men's wear, it was taken to the cloth mill to be thickened and dressed and pressed. The cloth was put into troughs and soft soap was spread over it. Then it was dried and pressed. The blue cloth would be rubbed with a stiff brush and then gone over with a pair of scissors and clipped. I didn't do any weaving this long and many a year. The loom went to wreck on me. I don't think there's a loom in the whole of Inishowen at the present day.